0: Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 173 for April 15th, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located, well, I guess it is electronically located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. I am, of course, working at home and also working at home and joining me this evening as always. Good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you doing, sir?
1: Good evening, Jason. I apologize to everybody for my tardiness. I had closed my eyes and was just thinking I would get a little shut eye and then, uh, you know, looked up and it was 10 after the hour. So I I'm well and... Continuing to uh, learn remotely here at the house and excited that because of the crowd crowd uh, sourcing brainstorming that we did last week, I continue to dive into some options for virtual camera masks or whatever we're going to call it, Vir- virtual tra- virtual backgrounds, I guess, not non green screen background transparency, whatever. Uh, yeah, coming to you with a lot of uh, potential distraction today. That's what I'll say for that
0: Well, um this is not about virtual screens. This is actually a podcast about technology news, and we will tonight go through uh, the nation's technology headlines and kind of shoot them through the prism of education and as technology is a huge topic right now as school districts across the United States and really around the world have evolved to well evolved sidevolved whatever you want to look at it as to uh, kind of remote teaching a, a an emergency version of distance learning there's a lot of interesting information out there tonight about COVID-19 um, some pieces about technology evolution in the Microsoft and Google space there's some new hardware out this week that I I, I want to talk about a little bit and I pulled in a couple stories we didn't get to last week, including a topic that I know Wes is very passionate about, which is story chasing. So Wes, I'll go ahead and let's go ahead and start with the COVID-19 news, because I think there's a couple interesting things here that are going on. The Verge reported um, on April 10th, and the story has been evolving and, and certainly taking on a new tap in the last five days that Apple and Google are working on a tracking system to be able to track those that are both um, uh, found to have the coronavirus, even if, or I should say the novel coronavirus, um, and even after they're well again, or perhaps if they are uh, uh, diagnosed with it after being exposed to other people, they're trying to find a way to create a tracking system that both allows you to uh, inform other people that might have been exposed to you, thus creating some kind of onus to quarantine or maybe to more aggressively quarantine, but also track the movement of the disease over time. And there have been literally hundreds of articles about this in the last couple of days, and my understanding from it is that this is not, you know, Apple or Google sending information to the government that's hooked to your Google or Apple accounts, but rather this is tracking low energy Bluetooth, which has been something that's been evolving actually quite dramatically in the last four or five years. Uh, low energy Bluetooth is not the Bluetooth that you probably are thinking about, the Bluetooth that hooks up to your headphones or perhaps a peripheral that goes to your phone, but rather it is a, a, a standard that allows Bluetooth to talk to usually little antennas in locations. So, for example, chances are, if you've recently gone into a major department store, there's probably been small little... Uh, low energy bluetooth antennas that's intended to track people's uh, area around for example a department store and while that can sound a little um you know next generation nineteen eighty four tracking the intention is to provide the opportunity for people in various spaces to do things like track the movement of people or look where people are congregated at or be able to track people over time for purposes of crowd control traffic or all sorts of, of kind of data uses. And so I guess I'll start with Wes. Um, have you uh, uh, installed any of the tracking apps? I know the one that is not app or Google based, but the one that I've been utilizing, because I, I think it's important to try to, to share data he, here. How we feel is one of the apps, It's not one of the Google or Apple apps, but it's an app that's intended to track people and, and how they're feeling at home without this one is, is supposed to be piracy focused. So there's no uh, piracy privacy focus. So there's not a lot of uh, a low energy Bluetooth tracking, but ask you on a, on a daily basis, how you feel in order to try to track maybe unofficial COVID numbers. But uh, where are you at on your comfortability of maybe the major players in cell phones going ahead and tracking low energy Bluetooth to try to find some tracking mechanisms for this uh, pandemic?
1: Well, I actually, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, not I'm I'm limiting the uh, number of times I'm turning on the news each day. Uh, I'm using my Google uh, Google Home to usually get that news, and I think it was an NPR article that I had I just listened to about this tonight that was saying, you know, we're probably it's going. Smartphones are going to be playing an important role in the firing up of the economy, and um, and 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 to some level, the the tracking of people in terms of who. Has been, you know, certified, bona fide, whatever, that, hey, either, you know, you've had COVID-19 or you've, you've, um, um, you know, got, you've had, you've had, you've had testing that basically says you, um, are are safe to return. So I have not installed any apps like this. I am very curious to track this because we've talked on the show and had some other articles about, you know, civil liberties and what's going on in China. Uh, we've mentioned Israel. There's other, other nations, right. That are trying to, you know, utilize um, more, more than just uh, the meta information, but, but really do a deeper dive into the privacy data that, that we're giving up, by using our cell phones, and so I have, I have not. Are Are you, have you downloaded anything, Jason? And are you? Yeah, uh, I I am significant investment in a perhaps a Silicon Valley startup that's going to be, you know, <laughs> playing a role in the weeks to come with this.
0: Uh, no, I have not invested in any startups related to this. But I am curious about, and I do think that data, especially when I give some choice on data. Um, uh, or whether to share the data, I think is really interesting. And so I have been utilizing, and I've reported six days in a, uh, in a row on the How We Feel app in an attempt to, to start providing some data sets that are maybe a little more user control. But, you know, I think the thing that we need to be, um, you know, at least aware of is that part of what is going to allow us to track the COVID-19 outbreak and maybe uh, exert some control over the pandemic is to understand how it spreads. And I'm certainly not an advocate for, you know, endlessly sharing of personal data with uh, even well-meaning third parties. But I do think there is something to the fact that we have an unprecedented ability to take perhaps anonymized data uh, and provide an opportunity to to track the virus over time in an attempt to do something about, um, you know, uh where people are going, how they're moving. Um I know that we talked about two weeks ago that Google had been sharing some data sets about various localities. I think they were doing it by county to see who was really staying at home and who was moving around more. Missoula, the county I live in, in Western Montana, happened to be one of the uh more aggressively moving counties, uh, which meant we ranked lower on the stay-at-home index, although we have had relatively few cases in Western Montana. But I do think it's an interesting... Um, uh uh that that at least they're experimenting with this and also there obviously's been some privacy advocates that have expressed concern about this but there've been others that are privacy minded that said there's ways to do this that doesn't sacrifice personal privacy so i'm hoping that that good um um uh, i hope that good stewardship continues as part of this discussion as we talk about how data plays into the fighting of covid-19 Okay, so uh, two other articles. One's from uh they're both from last week, although only one of them we had missed last week. The the other one is a little newer. There's a great article in the uh April 6th edition of the New York Times. Uh it's titled, As Schools Move Online, Many Students Stay Logged Out. And I've seen at least a dozen mentions of this um in the national news media that although many school districts have adopted remote learning policies, uh, everything from formal distance learning platforms to something that's a little more informal, whether it's with Chromebooks or traditional paper packets, a variety of strategies going on across the United States and really around the world. Um, there are times reports that a lot of school districts say that they're not able to connect with Many of their students. And in fact, even when they are, some students are deciding for whatever reason to not log in or not engage in 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 the distance learning programs that are available. And I wanted to strike this conversation with you, Wes, knowing that you've played a very important role in your institution um, in helping teachers move to remote teaching. I, of course, work for the state virtual school in Montana, and uh, certainly uh, many of our students have engaged with us since school closure started the third week of March in Montana, although some of our students have ultimately disappeared. And I think there's a discussion here that probably needs to happen after the, the pandemic is over with of, is it the strategies that kept some students away? Is it access? Is it opportunity? But obviously, this New York Times article calls into question some strategies, particularly digital ones, although really across the board, of what happens when school can't be in the physical school. So I'd start off with, Wes, what's been your experience as a teacher and an administrator right now um with dealing with students that have disengaged?
1: Well, uh it, this is this is fascinating. Uh, I would say, first off, we don't know how long this thing is going to go on. Yeah, and I really I really personally think I'm not speaking for my school here. I'm speaking just as Wes Fryer. Can I do that? Uh I can't that we need to be playing a long game because. <clears throat> you know, it's going to take a while to get a a vaccine out there. And no one that is in a position of authority today is being able to conclusively say, this is the date. Well, let me say this. No one credible <laughs> is saying, Leo, I can give you a date that, you know, we're going to for sure be able to activate and, and have everyone go back, et cetera. So I, we've talked and you mentioned on the show, Jason, and I agree that we need to be careful not uh, spending so much time really focusing on, you know, uh, not necessarily name-calling, but just sort of the, the blaming and things like yeah. that. We need to get through this. We need to take the steps that are necessary to be able to, to meet needs and move forward. Um, but at the same time, I we talk about not squandering a good crisis. I mean, we have huge equity issues in this country, and we need to be addressing them uh, now. Uh, this is this is something that we're not going to want to just, you know, say, hey, in another generation or or in 10 years or something like that. We really need to be addressing these issues. So in terms of kids that are not engaging, um, one of the things I've heard some some uh, leaders talk about it is in terms of the opportunity. Everybody's in a different situation, not only with respect to their technology access, what kind of devices they have, what their you know high speed Internet at home is but also just in terms of life and everything that's going on. So I think it's important that school officials, uh, teachers are are doing their best to provide an opportunity today for students to engage in remote learning. And we've talked about this on the show, why that's really important. We're not doing online learning. We're not doing distance learning. This is remote learning. This is different. And therefore, you know, the the strategies and the things that we're doing and hopefully also I mean, hopefully we can always have kindness and grace in our heart for others, but, you know, we really need a strong dose of that because it it is uh, an unprecedented pandemic that we're all facing, that teachers are facing as well. So I think that we need to be reaching out to individual students and families. I think that we need to remember, you know, old school technologies like the phone, you know, along with new school technologies like video conferencing and things like that. I think that we're going to, Need to step up as uh, as states and as communities to the need that we have for connectivity. Um, that's that's a huge one, right? In terms of can I get online? Do I have a viable you know uh, Wi-Fi or 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 cable cable modem wired connection uh, option? Uh, those kinds of things can't, in this case, just be left to the marketplace. I interestingly, uh, and, and we have—I don't know if she's still sticking around—but one of my my friends from my AT&T days, who uh, you know saw us on Facebook tonight and has jumped into the live stream. Um, when I worked for AT&T for two years, I had really interesting conversations uh, with some with some you know officials who who talked about return on investment and why. Uh, AT&T at that time was not really fired up about community Wi-Fi and why the return on investment, you know, in a college town or any time you had a situation where the population density was at a certain level. Yes, that that was, you know, there was going to be return on investment. But when you look, took a look at, you know, very rural areas and, you know, areas that had very low population, um, you know, there's not an economic incentive for the uh internet service providers to to be stepping up and providing things. So, <clears throat> we need to draw uh, lessons from the the days of of uh, you know, connecting rural America to electrification, to phone lines. You know, government regulation played a really important role there. Co-ops played an important role. And, you know, we we saw that it was not an option to bring electricity to everybody's house. And it wasn't an option to bring a phone line to everybody's house. Similarly, bringing high speed Internet connectivity. And we've talked, I think, on the show before, too, like, that's interesting. You know, does that mean 25 megabits per second down? Ooh, you know, we're right now on the next to top tier for Cox Cable, which in our community means 300 megabytes down, 30 megabits up. That's meeting our needs pretty well as having four remote learners. Um, But I would just say, this is a very long-winded answer, we have got to step up as communities and we're going to need to be stepping up as as taxpayers and citizens because we can't have, and this is just, again, my view, (coughs) a laissez-faire approach that says, hey, yeah, the market will just take care of it. You know, we're just going to you know, let let the AT&Ts and the the Verizons and the Comcast's and all that of you know see if it if suits their fancy and if they want to connect people they can. No, that's that's not what we're going to need. We're going to actually need uh, a regulatory uh, situation where we're going to have to bring high speed internet to folks so that so that they have the opportunity to fully participate in the 21st century. You've got to have a digital device and you're going to have to have connectivity. Both of those things are required.
0: Yep, absolutely. And I will also note, too, that a bit from my background as well, and again, speaking for myself and not for my institution, that, you know, distance learning and and remote teaching and all the span of the spectrums here, Um, Some students really do need more direct face to face engagement to stay engaged with difficult learning tasks. And, um, you know, uh, the the other uh, the other article I want to talk about tonight is one from last week as well. There's an interesting USA Today article about the use of apps to teach uh, 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 world languages. Right. And the question is, well, is this the primary moment for apps to step in and replace teachers? And, you know, I run a distance learning organization that prioritizes putting teachers with students in order to to make learning productive, interesting, and engaging, right? And, uh, you know, the Internet has always been a, a broad promise of being a, a massive opportunity for people to teach themselves stuff. But remember, if it was good enough to use YouTube and apps and videos, we'd be able to hand an iPad to an infant or a young child and have them just take care of this on their own. That doesn't diminish the fact that lots of people can teach themselves some really interesting stuff, utilizing the extraordinary amount of resources available to them. And I've personally heard a lot of interesting stories of parents that have uh, been underwhelmed by their district's response to this. And again, I wouldn't criticize districts here. This has been an extraordinary amount of 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 uh very fast evolution uh with very little time and in a lot of cases very little resources to do so but they felt as if that that they, they weren't getting a full days of engagement out of the, their district strategy and so they've had their students engage in passion projects right research something yourself create something yourself do something yourself i do not And in fact, I would would agree with that's an extraordinary way to create a, a kind of a culture of learning in your household. But that doesn't diminish the fact that most students would prefer a social environment. Most students would prefer to see and be with teachers face to face. Most students would prefer to learn. In a well implemented classroom environment as opposed to from an app. And so, you know, this is not the time to declare the end of, of education and, and teachers. And, you know, what we know already works by both research and practice. The, the notion here is that we are an emergency situation. Um, I have a sticky note, uh, that, that is on my monitor that I refer to, uh, constantly and I would show, show it close to the camera, but it disappears with my little app background. I keep reminding myself that this is a pandemic right? We are in an emergency situation. It is not um, uh, uh, at all, a, a, an exaggeration to say that, that we have not seen anything like this in the modern era of schooling. So let's give ourselves a break for now. And let's also not declare this an opportunity to get rid of some of the things we hold so dear in education, like the student-teacher relationship, like formal and informal learning environments that involve teaching and teachers. And I think that's an important part of us responding to and evolving through this process.
1: And I'm really curious and I and love the chat that we've got going on in the, in the chat room when I want to definitely let people know whether you're viewing us on YouTube live or on uh, Facebook live, you can go ahead and, and put a comment in. Uh, we can see that we've got, you know, five live viewers, but until you put a comment in, we can't really, we can't, we don't know who it is. Uh, so definitely add, uh, add a shout out of hi, or if you want to ask a question or anything like that. Um, I I would be very curious to know how many How many school districts right now are under pressure to basically cater to the lowest common denominator, which is no, which is not being connected, not having a device, not having connectivity. Um, I would say that's not what we should be trying. That's an equity issue, but we shouldn't be letting that define the ceiling of what we're doing for students. Um, you know, we just rolled out this week, a new schedule for our students, particularly in middle school. Uh, so I actually had my first live class with my fifth and sixth grade computer students, um, our schedule, which I can link in the, in the show notes, uh, cause we're having all of our COVID-19 response stuff, you know, on our, our public side of our, of our website for our school, which I think is great. Uh, our new schedule emphasizes more, more live teaching. <clears throat> I had not had a chance to have any live classes because I'm an elective teacher. I normally would see my kids face to face every other day. And in the new schedule, I see them uh once every six days <clears throat> and I teach four out of the six days, but the kids are, you know, uh, I think it's at least four face to face classes that they're, they're online with. It's, it's quite a bit. And so there's assumptions that are being made about how much connectivity and bandwidth students have and, you know, how that mix of asynchronous and synchronous should happen. So I guess I want to I want to tell people that, yes, I agree with you, Jason. We we are in an extraordinary pandemic and we need to be very forgiving and we need to, you know, open open up our hearts to the, everybody who's, who's involved in this, you know, students and teachers, you know, administrators, parents, everyone. But we also need to be keeping an eye on what the best practice is and also kind of basically not going to one extreme or the other. Let's not assume everyone has plenty of high-speed connectivity for every learner in their house to be online at the same time with their own device because that's not accurate. And similarly, let's not go to the opposite extreme of saying, oh, wait a minute, some of our kids don't have connectivity. We better just stick with packets and not do anything online at all. I think we're going to need to strike a balance there. So, hey, speaking of striking a balance, I hope I have not exited... Uh, exited the internet here because Jason has just tapped out, so I will keep talking in the hope that I am not alone in the live stream, and what I am doing, and I have not done this yet today, is I go to, ah, there he is, he's back, I go to my my Wi-Fi here, and uh, I was hoping I was not alone, Jason, and I prioritize, speaking of connectivity, I uh, was hoping that I hadn't Drop my connection. We we have the Google Wi-Fi, which is now Nest Wi-Fi at our house. And usually before I'll show, I'll, I'll prioritize myself, that I'm hopefully not not kicked off. So are we being a little bit too adamant and passionate on these topics tonight, Dr. Neifer? No, I mean, and, and I think we do
0: owe it. I mean, th- there's going to have to be a long, long, long conversation about hundreds of issues in education after this is over with, we can start some of them now. For example, the connectivity issue couldn't be more important. And, um, I, I, I'm particularly sensitive to this because I feel like there's been a lot of lip service, uh, with you know large telecoms on, uh, in, in some cases accepting money in places like rural Montana, and and it's just not as connected as it needs to be or should be. And I am very sensitive to that topic because I do think that internet um, internet connectivity should be like a utility at this point, right? We should treat it as everyone um, in in a reasonable location should be able to get. I would argue at least two different types of internet uh, relatively inexpensively. I would uh, put. But my own tax dollars towards that. I think it's important enough uh in, in, in 2020 to have that those pieces. I also think too that you know some of the districts that scramble to do something about this, it's not just a question of connectivity. It's also a question of things like teacher professional development. It's a question of how do we um, uh, 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 best help our teachers, help our students uh, in blended learning environments that in a lot of cases have been ignored in, in, in some districts and regions. And so yeah, it's it 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 is such a multifaceted of the conversation and you know, at the same time you know I- ignoring the learning component of this, the fact that schools are relied upon for so many social services beyond uh, uh the learning component itself. I know that a lot of school districts, thousands of them across the United States, have worked extraordinarily hard to get meals delivered to kids because uh, school is a is is a lifeline to provide nutrition for so many students in the united states that 's a conversation we need to have as well, but it's multifaceted and I think we should reflect a lot on this. Of course, let's keep our on the ball. We've got an amazing amount of interesting things uh that are going on right now that are worthy of our discussion and our collegiate conversation and, and, and debate and, and and posture. But at some point too, we're gonna have to go in and, and and maybe reprioritize a little bit and consider where we're going, where we've been and and what the future looks like.
1: Very good. Well, we are going to visit about some some other topics here in addition to that. But, I, I mean, each week for the last several weeks, I think the, <clears throat> the COVID-19 impact on education has probably been one of the most important things that we've been addressing. So we're not, uh, not going to give that one up. But uh, I would like to go ahead and take us to a uh, security article, which you, sir, put in. And there's a segue here because the more we're doing online – the more important it is to talk about being safe and how we need to make sure we are protecting ourselves, our families, our communities, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you had shared an excellent article perhaps yesterday uh, that was from the Android Authority. It was called One One Password Versus LastPass. What's the best password manager? And uh, basically the article says you can't go wrong with either one. They're both fantastic and they've got, you know, different features, but a lot of similarities in the course of that sharing. Uh, we also had, I think, Ryan Collins, one of my friends from Ohio that I met years ago. It's one of those connections where I made it, made it, I think I, I don't know if I had met, had made a connection with him online, probably via, via Twitter, or actually this is via blogs, maybe even before Twitter. Uh, but anyway, I got to see him f- for their conference. Uh, in fact, he was one, he was one of the people I went to their state conference and, uh, had asked the organizers, hey, if I can just see one breakout session, you know, who should I see? And they're like, you go see Ryan Collins. So he's he's that guy. Uh, but anyway, he had recommended an open source password manager that i had never heard of before. That is called Bitwarden. And so um, we, we tweeted out to them and it is saying solve your password problems, the easiest and safest way for individual teams and businesses to store, share and sync sensitive data. So, Dr. Neifer, where are you today on the password manager You know, conversation as you have that with not only colleagues at work, but perhaps members of your own family. And then as you all are talking to students, what kinds of things are you all telling them?
0: well I'm a LastPass guy I have been for a long time and I think it was uh, it was on this podcast uh, probably about a year ago we started talking about my slow evolution towards getting a unique password for every single website and and I will tell you it's a randomly generated password for every website 20 characters or more um, I get made fun of uh, sometimes I do have a, a handful of projects where I have to share a username and password and when I create it I send them a username and a you know, long password and and, and uh, I, I get made fun of, but I tell them if you know if it's ten randomly generated characters, you're not going to memorize that anyway. So it might as well be twenty five randomly generated characters, right? But I am all in on one pass, and it's when I encourage my friends and family to do. I also encourage my colleagues. I'm sorry, uh, uh, you're right. Last Pass is the uh, my preferred one there, and um, I, I my my wife uses it, my family uses it. Um, it's something that. Um, I think it's really important to do. I think, and, and I, the reason why I like this article is that it, it basically said, that as long as you're using a good password manager you're probably you know just comparing uh, uh apples and slightly sweeter apples as opposed to you know good and bad there are some password managers that that I have seen articles on before to say they were clunky or not useful i had never heard of this bitwarden uh a software although I did read through the site and it looked interesting because of its open source nature but um I I couldn't stress enough you're probably creating new accounts right now if it's not for school it's for home uh, uh, uh whether it's a streaming service or it's something um, that you're using for the first time, it's worth your time to create a unique username and password for every website that you use just so to get that extra layer of security. You can't memorize all those. So use a password manager.
1: And I probably need a better place for all these, but currently I, I have a series of webinars, one of which is protecting yourself and your family online. That's at designcreatesharecom uh, slash. Something you can just click I think videos at the top or webinars or something uh, but yeah it's uh, it 's critical, and it 's one of those things that you know early adopters, like so many different things with technology we 're doing first and it 's becoming more and more mainstream and just as we talked you know quite a bit in the last two shows about zoom jacking and the ways in which you know folks are <clears throat> using programs from the dark web to be able to jump into conferences and the ways in which some folks uh, to include uh, members of my extended family who apparently I learned today uh, their church posted a link to their Zoom recently and, you know, led to Zoom jacking. People have got to take security seriously and we can't just, uh, you know, brush this off. So it, these are conversations for everyone, not just for the geeks in your in your house or in your circle of uh, of friends and We need to just continue to help people understand how they can, how they can be safe online. And that's a a critical piece of that puzzle. What else? Would Absolutely.
0: You, uh, Absolutely. Uh, the other security article that I want to share, uh, is something that's actually a couple months old, but I saw it kind of, uh, circulating around with, with a couple different, uh, professional groups I follow. Uh, this is from the CBC on January 28th, 2020. Why taking Facebook quizzes is a really bad idea. And, um, I noticed that this was retweeted by a couple of, uh, uh, uh I guess maybe influencers, I guess. So I think this did strike a chord, but something that, uh, uh I, people are coming back onto Facebook. Uh, I kind of have the counter. Tech uh, correction uh, uh, argument I want to make a little bit later in the show tonight to talk about how maybe we're having a correction to the tech correction as we reconsider where we're going with a technology. It's provided, I think it's proved to be extremely useful, not just because, you know, K through higher ed education needed to move to technology to be able to stay connected for the rest of the school year, but also because we're connecting with our families and friends and news in that way. But this article talks in some detail about the risk of, uh, utilizing free Facebook quizzes and whether it's, you know, what character for Mad Men are you or, um, uh, what, uh, what historical figure are you closest to? Whenever you are giving access to a quiz that can, anyway, access information about you, and I—it's been a while since I've taken any of those sort of Facebook quizzes, but those quizzes oftentimes will ask for at least your basic user information. We'll say, "I'm accessing your name and your basic profile information." The argument here from security experts is that you are actually, perhaps, contributing to a database that um, could be anything from things marketed towards you to people actually seeking to steal your identity and find out more about you to engage in directed cyber attacks uh, against you. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure that, that that many of these are probably in good, clean fun, but the free quizzes that are offered on social media oftentimes aren't really free. You're really paying not only with your personal data, but perhaps even with your privacy. So, be careful out there, right? I know you're bored, right? I'm certainly getting bored, uh, and at some point, uh, re-watching 90s television, I'm in season two of ER, which I have no idea why I'm watching it, but it seemed to be comforting to me to watch some older television from my youth, but, uh, you know, don't board your way into a security problem.
1: Hey, go out and watch and put it on your watch list if you haven't already, The Great Hack, on Netflix, if you've got access to Netflix. It's a 2019 documentary and it's all about Cambridge Analytica. And, you know, sometimes these very innocuous sounding, oh, are you a Gryffindor or would you be Ravenclaw? You know, kinds of quizzes actually contributed to some significant disruption in the electoral process, both in Great Britain and the United States. And it's a real eye opener to see how how these things like take a little quiz, you know, have led to incredible uh, breaches of data and compromises. And again, here in the United States, as well as globally to a degree, although Europe is leading us with uh, with GDPR. You know, we're just hoping and, and, and expecting the tech companies to, uh, clean up their act and be able to protect us and, and not, you know, allow these kinds of, of nefarious and dangerous things to happen. And some things have changed since, you know, pre 26, pre November 2016, but a lot of things are the same and user behavior that this is it. You know, the vector of how the, the bad guys are getting at information, it generally has to do with you know, whether or not you're clicking links and the kinds of practices that you and I have with our passwords and the uh, the level of trust, really, that we have when it comes to, you know, clicking things and, and sharing things. So more important than ever, we've got more people than ever before who are you know, handling, handling their commerce online. Uh, we've learned I went ahead and paid think, like a hundred bucks a year to get our Walmart supercenter. you know, to, to deliver for free. And so what we've realized is you got to save your spot. So I just, tonight at dinner, somebody mentioned, Hey, I need some shampoo. I was like, well, okay, let's open up our order. So we got our delivery, you know, scheduled for Friday and uh, you have to have at least $30, but you can always add to it. Anyway, you know, we weren't doing that, level of online shopping, uh, you know, a month, a month, two months ago that, that we are today. And so that volume of digital traffic is going to mean there's even more folks trying to get access to our information, our data, and sometimes it can come from quizzes. So that is a fantastic article, and I'm really glad that you shared it. So.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about maybe some platform news. Uh, Interesting things going on in the Google architecture and in the Facebook architecture. Last week, we talked about Zoom and some of the nationwide panic over Zoom, and that that story continues. The one thing I would say that uh, is very exciting is that uh, all these platforms that are suddenly being relied upon for remote working, remote teaching, uh, connecting with family and friends. They're evolving very quickly and rolling out new features at a really unprecedented rate. I mean, let's talk about the Google stuff here um, uh, uh, quickly. A great article from The Verge on April 13th for the Chrome OS faithful, which happens to include me. Uh, Google is starting to prefer installation of, of progressive web apps or PWAs over Android apps when they have an opportunity to do so and um I would say that this is a great uh, uh evolution uh especially on chrome o s um, I'm a Chrome OS guy. I utilize Chrome OS uh, a good percentage of the time, especially uh, laptop-wise. I'm currently using a Windows desktop at home uh, because I've needed some uh, some uh, access to uh, some applications that are need the full desktop. But even at work and when I carry a laptop, it's always Chrome OS. And I prefer the progressive web apps, generally speaking, because they're fast, uh, they don't take up any space, and they're usually quite functional. And so it's interesting to see uh, uh, kind of Google go in this direction and something that I can. I can tell you uh, from my own um, experience that you can really save almost any any web page as an app on Chrome OS. There's a command to do so. You can even put it in a window. An example of an app I use at work all the time is that there's a couple of emoji directories that sometimes when I want to use a creative emoji, when I'm chatting with coworkers online, I've installed it as an app on Chrome OS, and it's just in my taskbar. I can click on it, put it in a small window, and search for interesting emojis to share. So that's an interesting evolution there. And then the the one I really want to talk about tonight, because I really do think this could make a real big difference in productivity, uh, the Laptop Magazine reported on April 12th that Chrome – version 81. So this would be the operating system and the browser is, uh, releasing a new feature set that has not appeared on mine yet. Although, um, I have not looked that closely, but I am using it on the mobile version of the, the, the browser. It's called tab groups. And basically what it allows you to do is to take groups of tabs, move them together and label them as one so you can hyper organize if you are a Multiple tab person and. Um, I will say that uh, especially when I have a lot of things going on, I could sometimes have 25, 30, 40. I don't even want to say what my record is of, of, of tabs that are open, but even if you are kind of a um, a ninja with having different windows available and you have all of the keyboard commands or uh, you uh, have kind of Jedi moves with trackpad, uh, it's useful to put things together and, and kind of put them in little groups and I've used this on the Android phone. Chrome on the Android phone already does this, but uh, it's, it's coming to desktop. And so that laptop article or laptop magazine article goes into how you utilize them and how you can put tabs into groups and what that does for you. So first, I, I got to say, Wes, are you a, a mass tab opener as a general user?
1: Well, <clears throat> I certainly can't be on my phone. In fact, again, tonight at dinner, I looked at this, and I think we've shared this on the show before, but on your iPhone, you can hold down on the uh tab. Um, I don't know what that button is, the, 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 the tab windows in the corner, and then you can choose to close them all. And I have, like, 46. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Safari <clears throat> on iOS is getting better about memory management, tab suspender, or the great suspender, or some Chrome, you know, Extension like that is, is going to be important for you if you have a lot of, of extensions. And we're helping teachers as well as students and, uh, maybe not as much parents become aware of this when we're connecting and saying, ah, well, you've got so many tabs open. Did you know the more tabs you have open, the more memory your, you know, browser is taking and that that'll really speed up your experience to not have so many. So I do not think I am a tab binger, uh, but it is very interesting to see. You know, these kinds of tools to help us restore. I've seen teachers really kind of panic when I'm like, let's go ahead and close these tabs and like, oh, my gosh, you know, and yes, you know, that's a great thing about the Chrome browser. You can go back to your history, go back to, you know, where you've you've had things saved. So I uh, am not probably uh, over over tabbing, as it were, but it is something to. Be aware of, and it's also frankly something to look at your your browser and your your uh, memory consumption. It's incredible to see how much memory and processor load that Chrome can take on machines. Now we're seeing that a lot with video conferencing, as far as you know, Google Hangout meets. It's great, but <clears throat> can put a lot of a lot of demands on us. Now, Peggy says she just closed 52 tabs before our show. This is going to be you know. What what do we what do we call that when it's like you know we we meet and say yes I'm yes I'm a tabaholic and (laughs) I just close so we'll confess our, our tab sins to each other and then you know promise to do better next time.
0: Well, I know if you've ever seen this, Wes, and I'm not sure if I can even show you this or not um, on the phone. I don't think I can with my little backgrounder on. But um, I have so many tabs open on Chrome on my phone that it doesn't show a number anymore. It just has a smiley face. So it, uh, I think Chrome knows that I tend to be a bit of an over-tabber. And a shout-out to my good friend and coworker Mike Agostinelli, who um, uh, at any given time, hundreds probably, and sometimes has to restart every couple of weeks, closed everything down to do it just to, to give him the freedom of getting rid of some of those tabs. But he's a big tab guy as well. Also does use the great suspender, though, the, the, the plug in that allows you to kind of uh, uh, have that stop sucking up your memory. So yeah.
1: and in our in our chat, uh, Peggy's giving a shout out to one tab. And she's using that as a mm-hmm. that she likes rather than, you know, organizing folders and groups and things like yeah. that.
0: And then one last story I want to focus on just because it's, it's timely. Uh, if you're in a Google district and you're using Google Meet and Google Meet is the video conferencing platform available on Google Apps for Education. Great, uh, stable, simple, easy to use platform, but it does lack one feature that Zoom I happens to have a, a a bit of a market on, which is what I like to call the Brady Bunch view. Like you can uh, put as many people as are in the meeting on a single screen. I, I've had up to 16 show at once. It's a great feature, um, but uh, Google Meet doesn't have that. It will show you four or five people, and in, in I believe it's the the upper right hand corner plus whoever's speaking. But there is a wonderful. Absolutely wonderful, uh, in a Chrome plug-in that you can utilize. It is a third party plugin. It's not from Google, but uh, it's got strong reviews and it's, it's advertised as an accessibility plugin that gives you grid view on Google Meet. You install it. It adds a button to the upper right hand corner and then you too can get Brady Bunch view, um, on a uh, Google Meet. And I was in a Google Meet on Monday in a meeting, um, with folks that, that work together at the University of Montana for the Moodle LMS that we utilize across our campuses, and I was a little sad because I couldn't see everyone's smiling faces, and I pressed the button, and suddenly all 15 people in the meeting, all their cameras showed. So if you've been missing that in Google Meet, that Chrome extension will be in our show notes at techsr.com.
1: Yes, and we have been using that for the last couple weeks at our school. Uh, I'll say as a teacher, it's it's hugely important to be able to see all of your students, uh, for them to be able to raise their hands, and, you know, the more, if you've got any... I mean, it can be just be one person with a microphone problem that can make things really painful, but, you know, being able to have students with muted mics, but still being able to raise hands and give you thumbs up and being able to see them all, it's instructionally really important. However, I would say there's, there are still some important missing pieces for uh, Google Hangout Meets. If you don't follow Eric Kurtz, I think we've done shout-outs to Eric before on the show. He's got some phenomenally wonderful uh, tutorials about a variety of Google tools to include Hangout Meets. They just made some very good changes where in your Google Classroom, you can activate in the settings a Hangout Meet for that class. And what that unique link allows you to do is not have students join it early. So when you simply generate a Hangout Meets link from a calendar uh, invitation, for instance, or from a calendar uh, event in Google, that that is basically a live link that anybody can join at any time. And so our school, I think, like many others, has set up the access to Hangout Meets for our, this is for our elementary and our middle schoolers, so actually they get to join Hangout Meets, but they can't create them themselves, and so it is an important thing as far as whether or not there's these links out there that that are just like, hey, we can hang out here anytime, so that is something new that Google has added when you create that hangout meets link within Google classroom, your students have to be a part of your Google classroom in order to join the link they can 't join it until you start it as a teacher and then as long as you make sure the students leave before you quit, they also can 't you know rejoin that so it makes it where it 's not a, a persistent link uh, but there is a, a, some other there are some other important things that google 's not doing to their credit. You know, security, we've talked about Zoom jacking a lot. I think last show, I've started to name our shows. It's been a best practice here for a while <clears throat> that podcasts are not supposed to just say, I'm episode, you know, like tonight, we're what, 173, I think. Uh, but you're supposed to have some like little clever name. And so I think I put something in there about Zoom jacking. But you have to be a member of your your organizational domain, your school domain, in order to just join the Hangout Meet video conference. If there's an outsider who's joining then you have to approve them to join as an organizer. And that's part of the missing thing that we saw with Zoom early on was, you know, people would throw these links out there. There were passwords and, you know, anybody could join. But there's not a mute all button. And that's really important. And so we are utilizing uh, some go to meeting video conferencing as well as hangout meets at our school. And one of the great things about that is being able to have that button that just with one tap, you know, lets you mute everybody who's there except for yourself. And you know, when you've got, for instance, uh, a room full of first graders, as we have now, that are meeting virtually uh, every day, and it's not just first graders; it's it's other you know ages too. That becomes really important. But uh, shout out to Eric Kurtz. Shout out to Google, continuing to make the tools better, continuing to educate all of us about the tools. And I am you know continuing to Be so thankful that we're part of the uh, Google domain uh, because that is a huge collaborative, uh, you know, potential that we have, you know, been realizing as a school. But now that we're in remote learning, it's, it's even more important and we're leaning in even more to the power of Google. Uh, what about that uh, VPN article, Jason? Would you mind doing that one from Tom's Guide? Sure, Um, so uh, Times Guy reported, I believe it was over the weekend, that a particular
0: VPN app uh, threatens 100, uh, 100 million users, and they encourage you to delete it now. It's called the the Super VPN app. I've never installed this app myself, but it is one of the many free VPNs that are available. And according to many security experts, that this particular free VPN client is amazingly dangerous. That's what the article cites. That that uh, uh, leaks information, it tracks you, it does all sorts of nastiness, and in some cases, doesn't even provide you the typical uh, uh, security that a VPN gives you, and uh, I encourage you to read the article, but I would state one more time for the record, do not use free VPN services, and the reason why I mention this, like you shouldn't do this, but this is a conversation you should be having with students, because VPNs are free VPNs are extremely popular among students in an attempt to get around uh, content filtering in school districts that, that have uh, open Wi-Fi, but substantially locked down, and sometimes a VPN can get around it, and sometimes it can't can't but the reason why I mentioned this is because uh, uh, there's been all sorts of articles uh, with really for years that most of the free VPN services that exist really only exist to steal data from you or track you in a way that they can monetize and um, uh, I'm, I'm a VPN user I use a VPN whenever I am in public Wi-Fi but I use either the University of Montana VPN because they provide me VPN access uh, so when I'm on school business I I always connect to the University of Montana VPN whenever, whenever I'm on any sort of, of questionable Wi-Fi, whether I'm in a hotel or at Starbucks um, or in, in, a, a library at another institution. I want to be able to get back to my home Internet through that pipe. But also do your research to find um, VPN apps that that uh, uh, you know are secure. For example, I use PIA, Private Internet Access, uh, which has a, a, a uh, a pay-for. Oh, they don't have a free tier. The pay-for tier I pay for. I think it's thirty-five dollars a year uh, for unlimited uh, access uh, to be able to to tunnel through that. Uh, I've mentioned Outline before, which is Google's open-source VPN. I, I, I you can pay five dollars a month, set up your own server for that, and it works super well. The point is, is that don't use free VPN apps. And if you work with students and you help them with tech issues, tell them not to use free P- VPN apps themselves.
1: Let's uh, hit at least one Apple article, and I'll do a shout-out to uh, Jeremy King, who shared this one with me. I had not heard about Apple and their new uh, developments as far as um, uh, hardware. Uh, this is from Mac Rumors. Today, April 15th, new magic keyboard for iPad Pro available to order, and deliveries begin next week. And so we've got some... um New hardware. Actually, Apple, uh, has rolled out some new iPads. And man, this thing, it looks very desktop-like. So, uh, it actually has a, tr- it looks like a MacBook, uh, a MacBook Pro or MacBook Air. Um, it's, it's just a hard, firm keyboard that has a trackpad at the base. And then it's got what looks like a very rigid, you know, holder, you know, for your, your iPad Pro. Um, so wow, pretty, pretty cool. Um, we 're in in the midst of conversations we were already about one to one and what 's amazing is we had we 've been you know we 've been optional byOD at our high school and we 've been cart based uh really everywhere else as far as like ipads mainly in in lower school or elementary school with 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 also some ipads and then Chromebook cards. And so anyway, we've been looking at a year and a half from now going one-to-one. Well, what just happened with remote learning is, you know, in the span of three weeks, we went one-to-one BYOD everybody pre-K through uh, 12th grade. And so we are having some teachers utilize some iPads and talking about platforms and things like that. And certainly in the hands of our teachers, it's been critical for, for math, especially to have a stylus. Uh, I just actually ran a computer over to a teacher yesterday morning who was having trouble. And one of the things she needed to do was connect her iPad to be able to teach, you know, math. And so exciting to see this from Apple. Jason, are you at all moving any more temptation-wise towards the Apple Watch, towards the Apple universe? You were on a Windows box last week, right? What what are you <laughs> I tonight because with uh, this background perhaps mean that you're not on Chrome tonight?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still my Windows box right now. And part of it, the reason why I, I, I did uh, get a, a Windows desktop back rolling in my house is because I've been playing more computer games. So uh, as, as part of the distraction when I'm at home, um, I will say the other article I put in with Apple hardware is that Apple introduced the, the iPhone SE2 today, which is their low cost phone, $399.00. For the 64 gigabyte model, it's got a faster chip. It's roughly equivalent to the iPhone 8 uh, from a hardware standpoint, but it's got a much faster chip in it. And my understanding is a pretty nice, uh, a pretty nice piece of hardware. I, I, again, the only thing that really tempts me here is the Apple Watch. Right? I like the hardware, and the hardware is okay, but I prefer Android stuff. Um, and, and I, and I really like Chrome OS. I mean, I'm really, other than when I'm trying to play, you know, old, uh, 1990s, uh, 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 IBM, IBM games, no, Windows games, uh, what I'm trying to do is to, uh, to, to, you know, I usually stay on the Chrome OS platform, but the Apple Watch is just so darn tempting because of the health features in it. So I don't know, probably not going to move anytime in the relatively near future. Um, I do have a, a bit of a sense of, of dread of the economy in the next six to 12 months. And so I probably will stick with my current um, already um, embarrassment of riches technology wise uh, in my home. But I think it is a, it's an interesting piece. The question is going to have for you, Wes, I know that the new mouse features are, have rolled out in, in, in iOS. Have you tried any of the new trackpad features on, on any of your iPads?
1: I I have not, um, but I am I'm hugely interested in it because this whole question about you know for for me it's not as much I'm gonna I'm gonna give up a laptop, but it's that like what the function I have when I'm iPad only, which right can sometimes be at conferences and things like that. So no, I haven't given that a try yet, but they're really it's like Apple's opening the playbook to say yeah you can do that. Because before it was like, oh, you can't plug in USB. Oh, you can't plug in a mouse. Oh, you can't, um, you know, drive a huge project, you know, screens and, and stuff like that. And they're really making the answer, yes, you can, to a lot of those things. So haven't tried right. it yet, but, you know, continuing to absolutely love my iPad as not only a consumption device, but a creation device. Right. It's the fastest way. I had a teacher the other night. Uh, she had uh, accidentally Recorded on her phone upside down for about 20 minutes and she needed to flip that um, fast. And, and, and i I guess I could have done that in quick time, but it's, it's so fast for me to do that stuff on my iPad. It was a 1.2, 1.3 gigabyte file. <clears throat> and so I just, I threw it over onto um, my, my iPad and then used a little f- flipping app and, and flipped it over. There's several ways to do that kind of stuff. But anyway, creation on the, iOS platform, and then also just the editing and things like that with iMovie. Really, really fast, really, really slick and wonderful.
0: And I have to say that from a form factor standpoint, that keyboard is really expensive, but I love the look of that case and the keyboard with the trackpad in it with the larger 12.9-inch iPad Pro. I am not in the market to spend $1,500 on that particular device, but my, 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 is that tempting.
1: That is attractive. Yes. So if for our, for our Apple lovers out there, and I know Peggy's still out there, that is definitely, uh, something that, uh, you know, I'm sure, uh, the, the folks at Apple, I mean, they, they make beautiful hardware. They make hardware that we on it and it's, it's beautiful as well. And I'm excited and appreciate the iPhone SE information because we're, we're still sporting a couple iPhone S, uh, which aren't, you know, as, as ancient as, as many folks are still using hardware, but that is something that we need to look at, you know, individually is, you know, when am I going to upgrade? And what you mentioned about, you know, global supply chains and global market and things like that. I I don't think any of this is going to dry up, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens, because this is a long term, the long term impact and ripple impacts of this in the economy. Um, You know, Apple's not going out of business and they're not going to stop producing phones. I'm not saying that. But we need to be thinking about when we're doing upgrades and what does that upgrade cycle look like, not only for your school, but also for your family. Uh, Peggy said she's sporting the iPhone 6 plus as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you need, it's going, it's not going to become obsolete tomorrow. You get a lot of return on investment on a lot of hardware today, especially, uh, I think iOS and, and Mac hardware, but you do need to, I think you, you want to consider, when you can get rid of it so you can still get a good trade-in. Uh, I yeah. think I was able to get about $250, $200 for an iPhone 7. Um, I was having trouble actually with my speaker, and then I just opted to go to the iPhone 8 for a little while. You know, I went to the 11 Pro, and then I gave that to our our 16-year-old who's really loved having that, you know, fantastic phone. And she's doing photography and, you know. Anyway, but it was, it was one of those things where I had to at that point because what I didn't realize is how dependent I am on talking to my phone all the time to dictate uh, text messages, to dictate emails, to be able to, you know, ask Siri to do things, to ask the Google Assistant. So when my, <laughs> Uh, speaker was going out, and I was not able to effectively dictate. It was sort of like I'd had, you know, one of my arms cut off. Literally, it was it was bad. So we are a little bit past the top of the hour, but we did start a little bit late. My clock or our clock there on uh, Streamyard says we've been going for 57 minutes and 24 seconds. I think we do have some Geeks of the Week. Do we want to hit any other articles, Dr. Knifer, before we Geek of the Week it? Well,
0: I I would note that if you are in the uh, market for a Windows laptop, my preferred Windows laptop recommendation um, I, I'm, I'm a big Lenovo guy. I think that if you are a nerd, especially, and you like to dig around your laptop, Lenovo's are pretty hard to beat. But for a, a, a typical users that are looking for a medium to high-end laptop, the XPS 13 from Dell has been my recommendation for probably three or four years now, and, and there's a new model out every year. But the Verge has a great review of the new XPS 13, which was released a, a few weeks back, and it's a beautiful-looking laptop um, that, that if you're looking for a more high-end experience, uh, read that review it looks like it's it's pretty great how about you
1: uh you know i think we we hit most of uh most of the big ones that that i i you you put in a lot more this week than I had. So um, I guess I'll do one more quickly. This is an old one. I don't know how I missed this, but workspaces, I was not using that in Google. So this is a nine to five Google article back from August of 2019. Google Drive priority page and workspaces rolling out to all G Suite editions. they started to use it this week. And what workspaces lets you do is take several different files in Google Drive. That don't have to be in the same folder, but you use this priority full, um, icon that's at the top of your Google Drive. And then you have a workspace. So, for instance, we're doing a lot with digital curriculum, and we've got different files in different places. So I've created a workspace called Digital Curriculum, and I've basically got all of those files appearing there so that I can work on them readily. That's just a tool I had missed and had never tried. So yeah. is something that you're playing with and you've already been using?
0: Workspaces. I I didn't. It's not that I didn't get it. I just didn't find a use for it until I suddenly did. And right now, I have a group of about six documents that um, I'm using every day, in part, to work on things like messaging and data tracking uh, in my program, in light of the uh, novel coronavirus. And so, I am spending my time. Uh, putting documents in that space and, and able to easily get to them. I think it's a great functionality, and it's another way that I think Google's doing a good job of trying to help you organize your information. Definitely. Okay, uh, geeks of the week, sir. Why don't you give us get us started? All here.
1: right. Well, I'm gonna abuse my geek of the week power by sharing too many things. But uh, <laughs> com will tell you if it's just you or if your service is down. Uses a variety of different Uh, you know, indicators uh, via social media and other things to be able to tell if, if a service, you know, be that Netflix or, uh, your local, you know, cable company or whatever, if it's down in your area. Shout out to the World Affairs, one of my favorite podcasts, which I'm continuing to uh, try to use, and I am, the Google Podcast app and service. Uh, but this is a fantastic show from six days ago called Using a Pandemic to <clears throat> Consolidate Power. And it's talking about, you know, across the globe in different places, the kinds of decisions and the kinds, like in Hungary, good grief, democracy is basically over there, uh, the, the kinds of things that uh, autocrats and in some cases elected leaders are doing to grab power, uh, just really fascinating uh Jason and I, with our <clears throat> debate in political science and, and, and social studies backgrounds, are definitely enjoying those sorts of things. So if you haven't checked that one out, Jason, it's one to, to not miss. Google has a great website called Teach From Home. And just like other companies, and, of course, you think about this, this is the power of Google, uh, they have created a hub of information and tools to help teachers during the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, one of the things, you know, I've definitely seen a lot, as you probably have, like, hey, 250 tools and these, you know, extensive lists. Well, <clears throat> the most valuable are the filtered lists where a company or an individual or a group has filter down the thousands of tools that are out there to say, hey, these are the ones that we really think are most powerful. And so that's a great resource. Um, I just downloaded this app this week, and it is available for Android as well as iPhone. It's called Jumbo Privacy Plus Security. And what this does is you authorize it. And of course, I found this in a source I consider reputable because you're clicking to allow those things like we were talking about with quizzes and stuff, but it looks at your settings and asks you questions and then encourages you to take a bit more of a conservative path as far as what you're going to allow Google to know and Facebook and these other things. And so I did ratchet some of my my uh, sharing back. I mean, I love YouTube and the fact that it knows my history and makes recommendations and I can discover stuff, you know, via that history. But that's a good app that I've just started to play with. And I think it's it, it puts what's in front of you and I can go right now into our settings for privacy on these different platforms. But having an app, so to speak, to hold your hand through this and then make some recommendations to you, exceptionally helpful. And then finally, the last one is a website that I spun up this week based on our conversations in the show last week. And it's called Live Teaching Tools. It's on support.cassidy.org. Slash teacher slash live. And so whether you're doing interactive presentations, you know, Desmos, Nearpod, Pear Deck, GoFormative, Socrative, uh, OneNote, polling and quiz tools we talked about. Um, I did record a tutorial on how to share your iPad screen with QuickTime Player. Uh, You have to have a Mac OS computer to do that um, and other features. So. A little too much for my geeks of the week, but, you know, sometimes I get carried away. How about you, Dr. Knife?
0: Sometimes you're a little more geeky than I am, as it turns out. So, hey, the two things I want to share, these are both nerdy weekend projects that are worth your time to set up if you, you've got a, maybe a, a great or a, an extra nerdy setup at home. Um, Gizmodo had a great article on April 13th called how to turn your smartphone into a webcam. And there are actually uh, quite a few ways to do this. The one that I figured out, um, on, on Monday night was that I took an older iPad I had and, uh, was able to download an app to that iPad that then works, uh, broadcast as a, a, a video source to, my PC with a couple of different, uh, things you can download. And the reason why that's interesting to me is because, um, the, the camera on my iPad, and I have an iPad mini that's it's a six year old iPad, but the camera itself is way better than this thing here, which is my, uh, current webcam. And it's probably 10, 11, 12 years old and wasn't really a high definition cam in the first place, but I have done some zoom calls on it this week. I didn't want to rely on it for our thing tonight because we were broadcasting, but, um, there are different ways to do that. So if you're interested, or I know that there is a nationwide webcam shortage right now. Um, A lot of teacher friends that were moving at home that were trying to outfit a desktop with a webcam weren't able to successfully do that because they couldn't find a webcam that could be shipped to them uh, because people have sold out webcams. So that is an interesting thing. Another one, I used to do this at work, and I haven't done this lately, and I'm probably going to do it. I'm actually setting up a new office right now. Um, I've taken over a guest bedroom in my home and moved from my former basement office, which was kind of in a stinky basement that uh, was dark and not particularly pleasant to be in. I've moved to a guest bedroom. I'm I'm working on turning it into a more formal office. Uh, There are different ways that you can share a keyboard and mouse over different machines. And what I What I mean by that is, let's say, for example, you have a Mac and a PC, and I'm not talking about switching between the two. I'm talking about literally dragging your mouse from the PC screen over to the Mac screen. And back and forth, and there are ways, software ways, you can do that. There's, there's two or three programs that allow you to do so. Many of them are cross-platform, but I put a really great article that teaches you how to do that. Um, it's from PC Magazine on April 13th. But basically, how to control multiple computers with a single keyboard and mouse that each have their own monitor setups. So you're not switching between the two on your monitor. You're actually dragging a mouse back and forth between the two systems. So great weekend project if you are a nerd. But... This here is not a weekend nerd project. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast that goes over tech news, shoots it through the educational lens, and tries to bring a little insight. You can join us on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central time, or I think sometime in the middle of the night if you happen to be joining uh, uh, in, in Western Europe. Um, Wes, where can people find you when you're not broadcasting on the EdTech Situation Room?
1: Well, as our little byline say at the bottom with our Twitter IDs, I'm W. Fryer on the Twitters. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, is usually getting a new post every week or so. And I'm continuing to build the instructional resources for our teachers, but they are openly licensed under Creative Commons uh, on our uh, Google site that is to be found at support.cassidy.org. How about you, Dr. Meiper?
0: I am at tech savvy teach on Twitter. I blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog. and I'm excited because I am uh, NCC on Thursdays has been running live events at 1 p.m. Pacific, uh, 4 p.m. Eastern on Thursday afternoons, and I think it's two weeks from now. I'm going to offer a 20 minute uh, live event on working at home, how to work at home, a topic we covered a couple of weeks back uh, here on the podcast, but. The EdTech Situation Room is available on Stitcher, it's available on Spotify, it's available on on uh, podcasting apps across the universe. Wherever you're getting your podcast, you can find the EdTech Situation Room there. Or check out our YouTube channel, check out our Facebook page, go to edtechsr.com, download show notes, download every link we talk about, or even tiny little audio files to listen to us weekly. In the meantime, we hope you join us live next Wednesday. Otherwise, stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night.